Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. What an exciting day this is. The crowds are gathered on the Wiggly sofa. They're all wound up and ready to rock. Over by the fireplace we have... Farmer Phil. Who looks particularly dirty, if I might say. He's been shoveling dirty wheat and herding dirty cows and it's rained on him. The combination is he's dirty. And over here we have... It's not always raining though, is it? But (laughs) Phil is always dirty. (laughs) (laughs) And you are, sir? Uh, Richard, uh, alias Roving Ricardo. And Mitch, you seem to be in a football shirt. I'm a bit worried that you've turned into a Leeds United supporter. Is it a football shirt? I'm not entirely sure. It's, it's a shirt that I quickly grabbed off the coat hanger in my earnest attempts to leave the house. It's probably to, free. To get over here this afternoon. Now, I've had this a long time. Um, stop it being it's, free. But I remember people have called it a cricket top and whatnot. Oh. Was. So, you know. Very sporty. So you, yeah, 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 anyway, he's yeah. looking very suave over there. Um, he's on. He's not on the sofa with me, which is a disappointment because he usually is. No, no, I've got to have another girl on well, the I've sofa. Well, I've been ousted today. Yeah. Ousted, I mean. But oh. this is Rachel. Now, I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers, and you will be wondering why you're not listening to the dulcet tones of Michael's scripted, eloquent essay. Joining up the interviews at Hay Festival with a sophistication that didn't suit the Wiggly podcast at all, but was beautifully done, I might say, Michael. Very good. You should really be on the stage, you know. You really were acting the part. You are best, you. What a lovely. That'll be cut. So if you're expecting to listen to um, Michael's dulcet tones today, introducing the second part of Ricardo and Rachel at Hay Festival, it's next week, because this week we have a right special. Today, all started with Stephen Fry. You know Stephen Fry? Yeah, well, the yeah telly. I did see him wandering around the Hay Festival there. Did you? Yes, he went to Hay Festival. He was there. Yeah. I, I'm following him on Twitter, and I suggested he called by the Hay Garden. Right. Do you know what happened? Uh, no. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. <laughs> he ignored you. <laughs> but anyway, this morning on Twitter, Stephen Fry tweeted, along with Mitch Ben and a whole load of other things, that Michael Jackson had died. Very sorry about that. What's your favourite song? Smooth Criminal. I am not alone. You are here with me. Yours, Rich? I, I'm not sure I have one, really. I'm not up there with the old uh, Michael Jackson fan club. But... Oh, well, I know what yours will be. I'm bad. I'm bad. <laughs> <laughs> Farmer uh, Phil? Uh, well, I don't think he did a version of Sweet Home Alabama, did he? So I'm a bit on the fence <laughs> on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I can, uh, no, Leonard yeah. Skinner, maybe. Watch your bits, Michael then. Jackson, no. Uh, anyway, he tweeted that Michael Jackson had sadly died, so you can tell when we're recording this, but also that Tracy Worcester's film was coming out on More 4 on 30th of June, and it's called Pig Business. I immediately clicked on it and it turns out that I follow Tracy Worcester on Twitter too and she has made a film all about the pig business. I came into work and Michael phoned about the podcast and he said, I think we should include Rachel Harry's interview with Tracy Worcester on pig business. Yeah. Hooray! <laughs> I looked across at Ms. Harris and asked the question, did you? Or did you not 
interview Tracy Worcester. I did, I interviewed Tracy Worcester at Hay Festival. Roving Raquel. I phoned Farmer Phil. I mm-hmm. said, have you heard of Tracy Worcester? And he said... Absolutely, I've heard of Tracy Worcester. That's Rachel Ward's sister. <laughs> Anyone see the Thornbirds? Oh, it was lovely, wasn't it, with Cardinal Watsit? Oh, <laughs> I, I just you know I can't place it at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, not just me. <laughs> oh, and dear. Tracy Worcester lives at Worcester. I believe she's married to the Marquis or Marchioness of Worcester, and I too follow pig business. Although I am embarrassed to admit that for a period I unfollowed pig business because she was tweeting the same tweets too many times for my liking. But I oh. have re-followed her now. Oh, Tracy Tweeter. Change your tweets. Anyway, we're going to talk about the film because we've spent the last million hours at my expense watching the telly. That is interesting. <laughs> you know, if you're going to spend an afternoon at work, then watching the box and. Oh, yes. Sorry. Michael's on peace work. That's lucky then. That didn't cost us too bad then. Yes. And luckily, Farmerfield Phil doesn't get paid, so that doesn't count. Michael's on peace work, so that's okay. Obviously, I don't get paid either, so that only leaves Rachel and Ricardo. So and I only do a day a week. And yeah. I'm half of that day watching the telly. I'm not complaining. And Rich, you enjoyed yourself? I did very much so, Rich. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can't complain, Alec, can you? Really? I'm a bit worried because we had ham ham is well we watched it but no matter yeah, it's good yeah, right. come over here I'll eat your food watch a bit of telly the oh. ham did originate in Britain after it was British produced <laughs> I might see if I can have one of Father Phil's beers before I leave the house <laughs> <laughs> you the day off nicely not as good as the Christmas podcast when we had champagne and chestnuts so <laughs> no, that, that was, was even very better very civilised oh, you yeah. lot it's all gone wrong isn't it it has Rich tell us how did you come to interview Tracy. Okay, well I was flicking through the Hay Festival programme trying to find people I thought would be interesting to interview and I came across Robert Kennedy Jr. who's an environmental lawyer, son of Bobby Kennedy, talking about pig farming. I thought, oh that looks interesting. And then I just happened to look up at my computer screen which has the homepage for the campaign to protect rural England who I also work for. CPRE. CPRE. And it had a campaign on pigs and I went and had a look and realised that they were involved in promoting this campaign about pig farming so I phoned them up and said who's, who's doing all this then and so they gave me the name of the production faster, company faster. so I got in touch with the production company and arranged to interview Tracy at Hay Festival right let's have a listen to Tracy Worcester and Rachel Harris at Hay a couple of weeks ago so I'm here on the last day of the Hay Festival in the Wiggly Garden it's still glorious sunshine and I'm joined today with Tracy Worcester, who's the director of a film called Pig Business. Will you tell me a little bit about the film and how you came to make it? I saw the pig industry as a microcosm of the problems in the entire food industry. But obviously everybody loves pigs and nobody wants to see animals suffering before we eat them. So this story was very, very clear of how the corporations have taken over and how it has externalised the true cost of so-called cheap pork on the supermarket shelf onto the broader community. And this particular story has shown everybody, or is extremely clear, how the whole food industry has been taken over. It's basically 
a story of the Lagoon and Spray system, which was introduced in American hog production. About 30 years ago, pigs were living on the land, grazing and bathing in ponds. And Mr. Murphy decided that he could shove pigs into tiny compartments, just like Tyson had shoved chickens into tiny battery pens. And so he started a process which, if you are able to cut your costs, anybody else who tries to sell in the market without cutting the costs goes bankrupt. So slowly, slowly you saw small farmers disappearing, farms getting ever bigger, and in the end you had farmers that actually had to sign contracts with Smithfield or go bankrupt, or other farms like Smithfield. And so these contract farmers were responsible for investing in the enormous sheds and responsible for the effluent. But the pig and the feed was actually the big companies. And so if they didn't pay enough to that farmer to cover the costs of disposing of the effluent, then he would go bankrupt. Equally, if they didn't pay him enough to pay back his debt to build the extra sheds, he would go bankrupt. And that was very good for them because they could, the big company could buy up the bankrupt farmer. So you've seen in America the consolidation of farms. Now, obviously, it's the chicken industry, it's the cattle industry, and this is the pig industry that my film shows. Because gradually in America, you've seen the laws being tightened and they're no longer able to build lagoons and spray systems because they're leaking and they prove very Can you bad. explain what the lagoon and spray system is? Yeah. The lagoon and spray system is that when you have tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of pigs in a shed, the effluent goes through the grid on the floor and out down a pipe into a lagoon and the flushing system mixes it with water. It's supposed to biodegrade in the water and it's supposed to be there for six months but it doesn't biodegrade nearly enough to, before they put it on the land. So the problem is threefold. You get terrible smells from the biodegrading of the faeces coming out of the sheds, out of the ventilation shafts. You get terrible smells from the faeces mixed with water in the lagoon and you get terrible smells when it's been put on the fields. Now the smell is actually hydrogen sulfide and ammonia but it's another whole cocktail of smells but those are particularly dangerous for people. The ammonia causes respiratory problems for both the workers and the people who live outside these farms and hydrogen sulfide has had terrible problems as well. So you've got doctors and scientists, both which have done a hell of a lot of reports, to prove that the symptoms that local people say they're suffering from, whether it's headaches or breathing problems or running eyes and blocked throats, are actually symptoms of deeper problems, which are neurological problems and respiratory problems. Mm. In America, there was huge um, opposition to this type of farming. Not only were you seeing farmers bankrupted and taking to the streets, but also local people who were feeling sick living by any of these factory farms. And so the law started to be tightened, and they said that a processor shouldn't own a pig farm as well, because in that way, by owning both, they could control the price which farmers were paid for the pigs, so they could lower the price... Mm -hmm 
So even if they were producers themselves, they made the money out of selling it to the retail outlets after they processed. So they didn't suffer from the prices going very low. And when they pushed the price down to eight cents a pound or mm-hmm. for the pigs, they bankrupted so many farmers that the legislation came in to say they, in some states that they couldn't own both the processing and the farm. Also, the opposition to the stench and people feeling so sick um, meant that they did actually enforce a law which said that they couldn't build any more lagoon and spray systems on new build. However, they did manage this powerful pig lobby to say that you could mend the old ones. So Mm -hmm. the problems do still exist in America today. But because they couldn't grow anymore in America, they saturated the market, they started looking abroad. And my film particularly looks at Poland, which is a recently freed from the yoke of communism. So the people are not used to these huge corporations coming in and really dictating the rules of the game. And the politicians have found it really difficult to control these companies. And also because of the different value of the currency, their fines for these companies, which are a thousand euros, mm-hmm. are peanuts for these big businesses. Yeah. And of course, if a small farm pollutes the environment and has to pay a thousand euros, that is serious, so they don't pollute. So these companies have slightly um, ridden roughshod over the pathetic amount of legislation that they had to prepare for this onslaught of giant factory farming in Poland. So when they first arrived in Poland, they actually, the local people were sceptical, but they wanted the jobs. So they didn't mind so much. But when they realized that actually there are only jobs for them to make the farms bigger, Mm -hmm. and when the farm had become bigger, there were no jobs. And then they started to realize that the stench was unbearable because there were so many more pigs in the farms. And then they realized that their own economy was bankrupt. Mm -hmm. They couldn't actually support their own farming livelihoods anymore. They took to the streets, and I filmed them on the streets in 2008. And actually, in that same year, later on, the farmers in England were also on the streets because you're getting the imports from giants in countries like Poland taking advantage of the cheap labor, of the low environmental standards and the fact that the rules were not actually there to protect the workers' health. So we're seeing the destruction of farmers from America to Poland to England, just from this one industry. And we do it one traditionally in Poland and every other country. They ate grass, grain grown locally, sustaining a livelihood for local people. But now... These giant companies like Cargill sell to the giant companies like Smithfield and Poldenor soya and other grains imported from other countries, and soya is grown in South America, Mm -hmm. very much taking land from small farmers, but particularly worrying is that they're actually replacing rainforest with soya farms. So there was a huge demonstrations in 2006 in the Amazon, and Greenpeace, along with the buyers of the product, like McDonald's, were encouraged to push Cargill and other of the grain traders to not grow any grain on land which had recently been deforested. Mm-hmm. So thanks to people giving money to charities like Greenpeace, you actually have had a slight improvement, but you're still stealing the land from small farmers mm-hmm. who were sustaining their family to growing soya to feed our pigs. 
And actually, it's far healthier for animals to have a diverse range of feed, including grass, because then they have more omega-3 and omega-6, which is very good for us. So what my film is basically showing is a story that I went from the beginning of the time in Poland where people were on the streets demonstrating against these factories up until today where actually the farmers across the nation are on the streets Mm. appealing to their government. And in fact, if you go down to those farms today, none of the people will speak to you because they've all been intimidated into silence. I mean, you talked a little bit about the the implications for British farmers being the huge amount of cheap imports. And what are pig farming conditions like in this country? Are we at risk of being taken over in the same way? We don't have nearly enough controls in this country to prevent the corporate takeover of our pig industry here. So... We've got two battles if you're a pig farmer in this country. You've got the importation of very cheap pork come into the supermarkets. So people are expecting to be able to eat pork five times a week. But also you've got the takeover of the smaller farms by the very big ones right here Mm. so that you're flooding the market with very much cheaper meat. I believe that it is good to have farmers on the land growing healthy food in an environment which is safe, which is natural, and understanding about animals and about nature, because we have a serious problem on our hands with our lives ourselves. One of the things that I was wondering about, particularly when we're sort of looking at the labelling of food, and food that's not necessarily labelled as as local but is labelled as British, and I was reading about bacon being able to be labelled British when it had been, had been smoked or processed or perhaps just slaughtered in this country but had been reared abroad. For us as shoppers, that just throws up enormous problems because we don't have any idea of where our food is actually coming from. Apparently across the board, the pig industry is demanding that the labels are sufficient to inform the consumer that that pig has been born, reared and processed in this country. One of the most important pieces of legislation in this country is that you're not allowed to keep a pregnant sow in a crate. And as the sow is pregnant, probably three times a year, that means almost her entire life she cannot turn around. Mm. So if we ensure that on the label it says where the pig was born, and it says in the UK, then you know that the mother of that pig had had a decent life. And has been kept humanely. It's absurd that they shouldn't be allowed Mm. to wander around. And in fact, ideally, we should be looking for pork that has been reared at least partly outside or at least on straw. And if you want to save your farmers, because you realise you live in an island and if you don't have them, you're in trouble in future, then we should at the moment buy what's called British Quality Standard Mark, which absolutely guarantees it's from this country. Any other label, forget it. It does not mean anything. Even if it says sourced in this country, it does not mean that it was born, raised or processed in this country. For example, Tesco's boasts in its advertising that its fresh pork has all been raised up to British standards. The only thing which is fresh is a joint that's straight from the animal. Everything else, your sausages, your ham, your bacon, it's not considered fresh, it's considered processed, therefore it won't be up to UK standards. Therefore, that mother pig has had a nightmare of a life. 
and I imagine that the majority of their sales of pork products actually come from processed products rather than them being an actual joint or yes, what they yes, call absolutely. what they call fresh, percent, yeah. fresh fresh pork. Yeah. I believe that you've had some difficulty getting the film screened in this country. Can, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I have had the most extraordinary time getting this film what's called published, whether it's on television or written about in the mainstream media. Because every time anybody writes anything, Smithfield Foods of America, which my film is about simply because it is the biggest, part of their tactic to leave the public ignorant as to the real effect of their production system is to silence people. So, for example, when Channel 4 tried to broadcast this film on February the 3rd, Smithfield threatened them twice. Obviously Channel 4, we all think, is very big and probably very powerful, but compared to a company which turns over $12 billion a year, $12 billion, they can afford lawyers to, all over the globe to ensure that everybody is silenced. When the Daily Mail wrote an article about tracing some food from a Smithfield farm in Poland to the supermarket here, the Daily Mail was written threatening letters that they'd be sued. When Channel 4 pulled the film and the Evening Standard and the Daily Mail wrote about the fact that the film had been pulled, they both got threatening letters from Smithfield. When I was invited to write an article for the Sunday Times, the editor made it into the most fantastic article, right, went to their lawyers, the lawyers had to lobotomize it to keep it as safe as possible with the UK libel laws, which actually fall into the hands of big business. Because you have to prove in every single way with scientific evidence, 100%, that that person who lived near that factory farm saying that they have running noses and headaches and sore throat and they can't breathe properly and it's when they smell the smell of the pig effluent blowing in their direction I can't prove it because the microbe went into them it's very difficult to prove however in America two lawyers I had look at my film and they said that this film no way could Smithfield sue them on the original version of the film because if you are a public company you have to prove that you didn't do that to that local person and I couldn't be sued because or any of the publishers couldn't be sued because unless we wrote that knowing that we were then we're innocent because all we're doing is reporting what other people have told us and what peer review studies has confirmed so that's fine in America so as far as I'm concerned the biggest campaign that we have to launch is to change the British libel laws because they are stifling free speech and public interest information but it sounds I really need like I really need to watch this film and it sounds yeah. like a lot of us need to watch this film. Yeah, well we could so. change the world by our shopping habits. And we actually do have a huge amount of power. If we can somehow get this message out, mm -hmm. and I think it probably will have to be through the internet. Well, thank you very much for talking thank to you. me. And I think yes. and so people can visit the website pigbusiness.co.uk yes. to find a, find out more about doing yes. it. So pig business, not big business, but I play on that word on the title of my film. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> well, there we are. And now we've been and watched that DVD. We've got a little preview special copy 
Who shall I go to first? Farmer Phil, I think. Yeah, I'll stand in the room. How can you possibly defend that Farmer Phil as a farmer? It's embarrassingly indefensible as a farmer, but as a UK farmer, it actually points at my frustration with the fact that we're importing food that we would not be allowed to produce to those standards, which I think is outrageous. And it is our failure to communicate this information to our customers, the people who are buying pig meat in Britain, has led to this daft situation. But, I mean, you can't tell from the pack where the meat's come from. You can't tell who produced it. You can't tell under what conditions it's been produced. And, I mean, I know a little bit about it. I know that we're not allowed to have sow stalls in this country, and yet in other European Union countries, they still are allowed. So to that's where the pig can't turn round. That's in, in a, literally a pig-sized crate, and that the unfortunate sow spends her entire life in it, so that she might stand in there or sit in there for a number of years. But I've seen pig crates in. Don't get mixed up between a farrowing crate, which <coughs> they're put in temporarily to stop them harming the piglets by lying on them, and a sow stall. They're two different things. A farrowing crate is something a bit like you put a rail round a, a dog's whelping so that there's refuge for the puppies. That's what that is, and the, the sow comes out of those. But the sow stall is something that the sow lives in, and it is just a piglet-producing machine. Let's go to Rich. What did you think of the DVD, Rich, and the expose of pig business? Well, no, I was going to say it's, not, it's nothing that I wasn't completely aware of. There are certain elements in that film that I wasn't aware of. For instance, you know, the scale, the massive intensity, you know, the enormous areas that are taken up by the pig farms and the huge lagoons that give off these ridiculous gases that pollute communities 20,000 pigs, I think, wasn't it, in the... 20,000, it was... Well, I think the thing that struck me was the amount of faeces that was produced by the body of animals, uh, equivalent to, what, 100 million people spread over an area that pales to insignificance. Because the staggering thing about those those pig units was actually the small area that they were using to deal with a huge number of pigs' waste. In this country, there's no way that would be legal. They they were just saturating a relatively small area of land with the effluent and urine and faeces and anything else that comes out of it. small technical point. Why does a pig poo ten times more than a human when a pig's size is roughly the same as a human's. I suspect it's because they've been bred to convert food that much better. So that and more you, quickly. You so feed them more food, therefore you get more growth and more... Mm. If you treated humans the same, you'd end up with a lot of bloaters. There's some interesting things. One thing, one uh, real irony that struck me was when they were talking about it. In instance, you often hear people... Well, perhaps you don't often hear people... Uh, saying this, but I've heard people saying this frequently about Polish people, for instance, coming over here, taking our jobs, you know, that kind of awful stuff that people say. And there was an interesting situation where a Polish pig farm was saying that actually because he's being outcompeted by these massive organisations, these massive units, and uh, he'd had to come to England, or him and his friends have to come to England to work, whereas the same English people that might say about Poles coming over here to work and pitching the jobs off other English people will be buying the bacon 
that's uh, produced in, in Poland, and uh, isn't, that, isn't that an interesting thing? And Rachel, your overview before we get down to the nitty gritty things that are driving me bananas. I mean, what just shocked me was how the kind of methods of production that they've been using, that this company, Smithfield, has been using in America, is now illegal. So rather than changing them, they've just exported that whole system to another country where perhaps the regulations aren't quite as tight. Mm. And as you were saying, Phil, the fact that we buy it, that is the meat that comes into this country. You know, we have all these good, there's all good legislation on animal welfare and pollution in this country, but we can't produce meat cheap enough to that level, so we have to produce it in a country where it's not so strongly regulated and where it just causes all these massive environmental and health problems to the people who And I who suppose long-term, for those people who don't really bother where their meat comes from, the ever-downward pressure on prices mean that they buy it, mm. you know, it's cheap. And so the, the, the folk buying meat from supermarkets, they buy it, they're probably fairly unaware of what has gone before and it just propagates itself. Well, it shouldn't even be on, be on the shelves. You know, however much people want to pay for their meat, you shouldn't have meat on the shelves in a supermarket that's produced under those conditions. We are recording this before we know any other farmer who's watched it in Britain. I will be fascinated when our podcast goes out to see what their response is. Because if their response is as it was to Hugh Fernie Whittenstall's Chicken Out campaign, mm. it was very negative. The NFU wouldn't answer questions, the farmers wouldn't be interviewed. And I will be so disappointed if that's the case again over this pig business. And, and to what extent has the uh, chicken farming industry changed? Since, uh, since Hugh Fernley and uh, Jamie Oliver's campaigns to, to improve husbandry and, and production in the chicken industry, chicken farming industry. Well, I haven't got the stats in front of me, but last I heard, those two campaigns had drastically altered free-range chicken sales in supermarkets. The factory farms that were going to start up failed to start up and went into free-range, so it's had a massive impact. I think I'd read that there were a number of the what were called the standard welfare broiler houses, the number converting into higher welfare, i.e. less dense population of chickens in them, Mm. had increased because the marketplace had shifted to a more welfare orientated. That's really encouraging, but isn't there a danger that we're just going to sort of lull back into a into a, a sense of striving to get cheap food again after this kind of if, if the, the pressure isn't kept Possibly. up? I mean, if particularly people are feeling we just lull back into buying temptation. Is. I think with regard to the pigs, we're in a slightly different situation because within Europe and probably the world, the British pig industry has the moral high ground in as much that its standards of welfare are significantly higher than anywhere else in the world. Mm. Therefore, when you're talking about protectionist activities such as keeping out low welfare pig meat and so on, the British farmers can have quite a positive take on that. Mm. Why is that, though? Is that because the British farmers were um, up for it? Because I seem to remember them being against most legislation that's been brought in. Or is it because we just enforce those standards better. Because every time you tell me something, you tell me a European law has caused you this problem and that problem. Well, Poland's in Europe, so how come we are better, or are we? Poland wasn't in Europe when some of that footage that we've just watched was filmed, which is worth noting, and I suspect that they have had to up their game. But even within the countries in Europe, Britain seems to have adopted legislation on welfare 
to a much better standard than the rest of Europe. For example, we're not allowed to produce veal calves in veal crates. Full stop, end of story, and haven't been able to for years. Great, you know, that's absolutely fine by me, but you still can in Europe. We haven't been able to use sow stalls for a number of years. Again, absolutely fantastic, but they're still using sow stalls in developed countries like Denmark and Sweden and other European countries. They've only got a limited lifespan. You know, I think the figure was four or five years left to use them. Why? We've been banned from that. When I'm not sat here on the wiggly sofa and watching films at work, in my other job where I'm doing this local food research, it's going to be really interesting talking to shops in the next couple of months and trying to ask them whether or not in these sort of credit crunch times people are making different decisions about what they're buying or whether or not they're still paying that same attention to local food. Just a minute, let's get off our high horses here. We've all, in this room, bought ham and pork and pork pies and luncheon meat Mm. that doesn't come up to standard. In Mm. fact, I was horrified to see the pork pie that Farmer Phil had bought for himself while I was in Seoul. Mm. You know, one of those Yeah, well, you could see Phil going down, cheapest pie in the shop. I'll hold my hand up, that's fine. I tell you why he did it. He bought it because he went to Madley Shop and that was on the shelf. Right. You see, my point is, you know, it's particularly annoying. It's a choice between pies and beer. Beer wins every time. (laughs) He bought the local beer. My point is that you cannot blame the consumer for this crisis because if they put the truth on the package if they put intensively farmed pig that has never seen the light of day on that packet and on this one they put free range pork that's been out you know on grass then you'd know what to buy the responsibility comes down to the farmer and the farmer knows what he's comfortable with and what his values are Mm. i think and i'm sick of farmers blaming consumers who haven't got the information that truthfully in front of them. I think that's true, but I think that the spectrum of products that are available to the consumer, imported, homegrown and whatever, if you want to improve welfare, you tend to move the spectrum. You're not going to just take out of the equation everything which is, for want of a better phrase, bog standard. If you can start to chip away at the worst and make the best more accessible or even better value for money, then you move the spectrum. So that whilst I hold my hand up and say I bought a pork pie from the local shop, the ham that I bought, I was able to make sure was British produced and British processed. Wasn't free-ranged? It might not have been free-ranged, but it was produced to the highest welfare standards in Europe, and I'm relatively happy with that. You are not. You would not have an intensive pig farm on this farm. (laughs) You would not agree with what they do. So I wouldn't have a pig farm because I don't want a pig farm, but I am <laughs> relatively happy with how British producers, as long as they abide by the rules, do it. If I had the choice, I'd have a free-range pig, such as that, you know, we have our two out in the paddock, and that's fine. But I am aware that the consumption of pig products in this country cannot be fulfilled by free-range pigs of that sort. But I am also aware that the supermarket's value range of products, which are made from as cheap as they can get with injected water and all the rest of it, I'm dead against that. But if it is a reasonable welfare standard and it is produced in clean and sanitary conditions and the waste and everything is looked after and the pigs are looked after, I don't have a huge problem with that. It wouldn't be my preference, 
but I haven't got a big problem with it. What I have got a big problem with is when people are manifestly cruel to them, they're kept in dirty conditions, they're intelligent and clean animals. There is nothing worse for a pig than to be kept in conditions where it can't get away from its own faeces and urine. And that is cruelty of a first order. I think we're making a mistake when we even call that kind of pork production farming and call the people who run those places farmers because when you just saw the scale of those units and how they're operated, those are industrial units. That's just like you know the chap on the film is saying, it's I like a you, carpet you can't, production You couldn't really line. say it's not farming because it is farming. It can't, it can't possibly be anything else. But it's just that there are good and bad in, in any community. But the, 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 one of the things that strikes me is how could we possibly supply the quantities of food that we're currently supplying by any other means than those which are currently undertaken. Well, I'll explain to you a bit, in, not so much in this part of the world, because we don't have many pig farms, but in East Anglia and up the East Coast, up into Yorkshire, historically you've had a lot of pig units. And the way they worked was they might be an indoor pig unit, but the farm was an arable farm, it grew the grain to feed the pigs, and it used the effluent from the pigs to fertilise the fields. And it was part of an integrated system. It would produce straw to provide bedding for the pigs and so on. Now, all right, some of them would be on slats, well-managed. I haven't got a huge problem with that. But the point Just was... Just explain slats. Slats are where they live on usually metal perforated floor so that any effluent goes through the floor and is away. And you can wash them out clean. And there have been trials which actually show the pigs, because they like clean places, will prefer to go to a slatted area than it will to a deep litter area because it's totally clean. The idea that it's you know shiny and stainless steel, it's not what you imagine a pig to like, but it, they, they, it's they a nice choice, though, isn't it? I no, mean, that's it's it. a bit like us having a minimalistic flat as opposed to an old country house. It's certainly not, not cruel. It's nice to mix the two, though, isn't it? <laughs> and that would be the same for your average sty, I imagine. But where, it's, it where it's gone wrong, and Rachel's quite right, is where you have imbalanced businesses, so you have a business which is just a vast selection of pig sheds, there's no farm to it other than a piece of land that you heave the effluent out on and it is what I think of as a true agribusiness and no, I don't think they're farmers, it's a factory and if you bolt an abattoir on the end it's even more so but as part of an integrated farming system then I think that's fine, I've got no problem with that and that works on a number of levels because it uses inputs and it produces resources for the farm. So is that how you would define the difference between an agri-business and an agri-culture is the fact that the inputs are provided by the farmer and the outputs are used by the farmer as opposed to the um, massive companies of this world, the Cargills, who not only provide all the food for the animal, they rent you the shed for the animal, they control the machine that puts the animals in there, they control purchasing the animals, the waste of the animals, the killing of the animals and the sales of the animals. Fairly loosely, yeah, I would. I mean, there are obviously things that farmers have to buy in because they can't produce it. For example, to feed a, a pig, you need to buy in some sort of extra protein. You're unlikely to be able to grow it. But broadly speaking, if it's balanced within the farm business and you know, it is a part of the whole system, then to me, that is farming. If it's just a pig unit and it in no way relates to anything other than itself or an avatar, then that's an agribusiness. I know pig farmers who pig farming is all they do, but they then tend to operate with other farmers 
so that they'll take their free-range pigs round other farmers' fields and so on. That's fine, that's farming. But it's this idea of you just have a shed and you pile food in one end and pig meat comes out of the other. What about you, though, Phil? If, if, say, for instance, the sake of argument, you got rid of your suckling herd and you just grew can't do that. seed, you were just <laughs> specifically an arable farmer, bearing in mind you've, mm. that you've got quite a lot of acreage, relatively huge acreage at your disposal, at what point does an arable farmer become an agribusiness? Does that change That's for why you? I did qualify my statement by saying fairly loosely, but say, take our system, for example... If I didn't have livestock to eat my grass seed straw, then I don't suspect that growing grass seeds would be terribly economically exciting for me. I've also got land which is too rough or steep or whatever to plough so that it's logically grazed by an animal. So in my situation, Mm. it's difficult to imagine. I have got land that no animal goes near, but I still grow crops that provide the straw for the animal to either eat or sit on. And if I didn't have the animals then I would sell those products, the straw or the grassy straw or whatever, to other livestock producers to do the same with. Where you're producing a pig in a shed, it becomes much more finer, or a chicken in a shed. Or, you, you know, we don't have them in this country, but the Americans have beef feedlots. You, you just have a corral and you just pile cattle in it and food in it and then just take fat cattle out of the other end. And I tend to agree with Rachel that I struggle to see how that's farming. I'm operating the land in what I feel is a sustainable way to produce a living. And that, to me, is farming. They're operating a business out of a shed to make money. There's nothing to do with the land. I think agriculture, the meaning of the word, implies the use of land. All they're using the land for is to chuck the effluent out on. They're not even using the effluent. Given the cost of fertiliser, what a resource. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's interesting. I mean, you make some interesting points. I mean, a few things I could challenge you on, but it's going to take, it would take us off on all sorts of different angles, uh, which would, would make us lose I'm the, willing to the go focus for that, of the as argument. As you are Especially that one word, sustainable, which... Uh, well, I was going to say, the word sustainable is arguable. isn't necessarily. And to some extent, will only be defined in hindsight. Because you only, whatever point your argument comes from, you only really know whether you got it right or wrong at some point in the future when you can look back and say, this is what I did and this was the consequence of what I've done. That's that's an interesting perspective, really. I mean, that's a perspective born from laziness as much as No, it's not born from laziness. If you you have the the foresight to recognise, and there's sufficient detail in the past to lead us toward uh, ways and means of behaving to ensure that our our future practices are... Absolutely, but there, there are... Trials, and I know know where you're coming from, and we've had the argument to some extent before, but there are trials, long-term trials, that have gone on over sort of 10 or more years to try and measure the sustainability of different forms of farming. And they have discovered that without some sort of mixed element or some input of nutrient to the land, and it's arguable where it comes from, Mm. but growing food is not sustainable in itself. The fertility of the land goes down. It doesn't matter whether you use fertilisers or not, it makes no difference at all. Unless you bring nutrient in to compensate for the food you're taking away, it doesn't work. Now, there are many different ways that we as farmers set about doing that, and they vary according to the type of land that we're farming. Now, to my mind, we will only know whether the decisions that we've made have worked or not 
at some point in the future. We're learning from the mistakes we've made in the past now. Mm. I suppose the question that I've got is what are we going to do about it? Because not only what are we going to do about it, but if, if I was sat in my Institute of Agricultural Management class now and in the room was three pig farmers from Britain desperate to sell British pig, all three of them having pig sheds, all three of them having slatted floors, and all three of them very keen on what they believe to be high welfare standards. My first question to all three of them would be, did you open your farm on Open Farm Sunday and did you invite people into those sheds and let them ask you any question they liked about what you did? They would say to you, Farmer Phil, how do you decide how the size of a farm that is wrong? So how do you decide it's fine to have, I don't know, what's okay, Rich? 20 pigs? 100 pigs? Yeah, well, that's easy. 200 pigs? I, I, I never 500 well, pigs? I never mentioned size in my comments on agribusiness and so on. And there's a reason for that, because once again... Size is different depending on the type of land you're Size on. Size matters, Phil. <laughs> yeah, is that as well? But I mean, I've, there, I've to some extent discovered in Herefordshire that you once you get to the point of farming about fifteen hundred acres, you can't economically get any bigger. Mm. You have to replicate the unit, right? Because the terrain just doesn't lend itself to it. If you go onto the flatter land... What do you mean by that? You mean your combine won't fit down the road? Essentially. If, you know, you've got small fields, you've got mixed farming. You can you, rip the hedges out. Well, you can't, you're you see, because you're not allowed to. Mm-hmm. And that's probably rightly so, because in Herefordshire, because of People the geography, would. we haven't ripped the hedges out, because <laughs> it's, not, it's not flat enough. Well, mm. that's, that's... I mean, that's not true. We've ripped some Farmers out. have ripped out... Yeah, but nothing hedges. like what they have further east. Mm-hmm. And you see over in the East Anglian counties where you've got bigger fields flatter areas you can use bigger machinery you can have a bigger farm but i still go back to the thing that if you have some degree of integration within your business and that it works together as a whole rather than having an imbalanced business that is totally reliant or majorly reliant on an imbalanced large enterprise within it then it's not sustainable because if that enterprise hits bad times the business is knackered Mm. if you've got a a balanced operation, then it will survive those peaks and troughs, but it will also stand a better chance of being sustainable because you're closing the loops up. Time for a Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. The Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. I have my own raised bed in the veggie garden and I am growing my favourite things, carrots and carrots and carrots and guess what? Carrots. Another Montycast next week on The Wiggly Podcast. Thank you, Monty. But the thing is, the thing that we've missed out is the fact that it makes the meat cheaper. All these massive companies have ended up providing everybody with cheap meat, haven't they? That's what they aim to do. But whether it's value for money is a different thing, isn't it? There's an elephant in the room, isn't there? Mm. Because the thing is, as far as I can see, the whole point of that programme, that we've missed out the true costs of what we're doing. So while we say, oh, well, not everybody can afford to buy free-range pigs, not everyone can have two pigs out in the orchard just out there. Of course they can't. But 
if we buy cheap meat like that, we're not really getting it any cheaper. Because look at those Polish people. They had those farms, but now that big factory farm has put them out of work and they haven't got any jobs. So what do they have to do? They have to buy cheap meat. Drives me mad. Do you want to listen to my Nuffield? The um, 48 pages that I've written. So have you just, have you just finished this then, really? I've just finished my Nuffield, yeah, Rich. Yeah. I want you to take it home. How long has it. it taken you to finish it? I'm afraid that I'm six months late. Six, six months late? Yes. Um, and I've written 14,936 words. I'm going to take it home and, and read it, actually, because uh, I think I should. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> Rachel was very disappointed that there weren't any pictures. Yes, I know. But I just want to read you out because it's just so interesting that we're talking about this today, on the day that my Nuffield report has gone to the shadow environment minister, etc. Because here's a couple of things that it says. Direct marketing does not mean direct selling. British farmers are still being bullied and a lot of it is their own fault. If you let the same company supply your inputs as well as purchase back your outputs, what do you expect? You become nothing more than a workman with huge overheads. And many farmers are still uncomfortable with some of the things they do. People's values are their own and they vary. The point is whether or not you run an operation that you are proud of and that can survive scrutiny by the layperson. If you're operating a business with which you are uncomfortable and waiting for the next public expose, it's time to stop. And the rest of it is about how, if you are running a business you're comfortable with, how you can use social media to directly connect with people. And I really do think that the web has got a a role to play because if you think about how I got to know about pig business, it wasn't through Rachel or Hay Festival or the television, it was through Twitter. And doesn't that say it all? So, your Nuffield report, how, how do we get hold of that? I, though there are those of us who have been sent copious quantities of <laughs> links and pointers and all the rest of it, but for those who have not yet had the great fortune of being sent one of your missives, how might they download it? Well, you can email me, of course, for a copy, heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk, or you can go and download it. Now, the address is completely complicated to do with underscores, and you know I never understand the difference between underscores, dashes and hyphens and things. So it's the www.wigglywigglers.co.uk forward slash downloads forward slash heather underscore nuffield underscore report dot pdf or you can go to the blog wigglywigglers.blogspot.com and you'll find the link there but if you're in any doubt i would love you to have a copy so you can email me heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk we've got no reviews to read up for you so if you don't get your skates on and put some up i shall just have to put my own up (laughs) or get you too rich write a pleasant commentary about the wiggly Podcast really? Well, you... everywhere then. Again, you admire Farmer Phil or some such nonsense. Oh, yeah. his clothes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, uh, before we go, given that it's been such a long time since I've sat on this couch, it has been a long time since I sat. Admittedly, <laughs> I'm on the wrong couch, but still, it's I'm in sofa. this room. Yes. 
Right. Well, there's one, a few choice people have come up and said hello and how much they enjoyed the Wiggly podcast. And I did try and put them right on Farmerfield a few times. <laughs> so he's not really the bloke that you're listening to on the podcast. <laughs> no, not really. Well, it's great to have such but an advocate. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, uh, there's one chap in particular uh, that came up to me, Richie Pike. Malvern Springs show, good-looking bloke, came up, shook my hand, I said, I'm Richard Pike. And I said... <laughs> What a lovely Let's go down the river. Well, I mean, admittedly, a few. Let's go down the river. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Come on. <laughs> and off they danced hand in hand. No, no. No. The, uh, I should say, uh, it was it was fantastic to uh, to meet you, Rich. And I know you'll be listening to this somewhere in a garden with your little earplugs and your MP3 player, tuned into the Wiggly podcast. And I promise I will do the ensuing uh, sequels of the chicken keeping series. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Mm. We do need more hens from Richard. You've got some hens back in the garden now? I've got three hens. You've got some ducks as well, I believe. I've got two ducks. They keep quacking, though. Funny that. (laughs) (laughs) Quacking. Quack. Anyway, and now we're at Hampton Court Palace Flower Show. And we're there between the 7th and the 12th of July. Fine. So you're there for the best part of the week. Yes. For the gala evening, the yes. press day, yes. bit of rattling, bit of schmoozing, yes. tasty treats. Champagne. Yes. Oh, okay. I've got I'm two there. vouchers for two bottles of champagne. Thank really? you, RHS. Very nice. <laughs> yes. Very nice. Yeah. And when, when are you when's there? Richard? I'm there I'm at the dregs of the show, right at the end. And the breakdown. Last, the last two days. Unfortunately, not breakdown. No. Haven't agreed to do any no. breakdown, Farmer Phil. Haven't been to Court... Um, since I was about 17 years old and I took my gran to look around there. And I, I didn't, got I didn't lost really in enjoy the maze. It, it? Did you? For ages, yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> nice show. <laughs> was that a height-related sound? <laughs> it's a nice show, Hampton Court, because there's plenty of space, isn't there? It's not, yeah. you don't feel all crammed in there. Yeah, I mean, Christ, it was that, 22 years ago since I went? So, mm. long time ago. And Cliff, if you're listening, Cliff Richard, I'll see you there on Monday night. Gloria Honeyford, I'm waiting for you. And Mariella Frostrop, Richard's not available, so I'd like to talk to you. The best (laughs) voice in broadcasting. If you missed it, you need to listen to podcast number 187. And you, you did like Mariella, didn't you, Rich? Yes. I had a couple of choice chats with Mariella. She's rather lovely. She kept coming over and waving at him. In fact, the funniest thing was, is that (laughs) one day she let me a little note on a napkin on the table. So I kept the napkin. Next day she came out and said, I've got got to hand these cards out, she said. And she said, so she gave me a little sign card and I said, well, that's lovely, Mariana, but I'll treasure your napkin more, you know, sort of off the cuff. So... So it was quite I'm funny. Up the but I put I put these little treasures in my fish book. You know the old Hugh Fernley Nick Fisher fish book. Put it in there. Sarah was rifling through there the other day for oh, no. choice recipe. And she said, "Have you had some signed things in there from Mariella Foster?" <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah it was only a bit of fun, is it? Just a bit of. Oh, I just put that bit in my trouble there with the strike. There eh? will be trouble. 
I should have put it with my ma- my marijuana leaf in my uh, in my Marcel Huey's fish book, which is something that uh, Sarah would never read. Anyway, from the Wiggly Sofa, from the Wiggly Podcast, it's been a great day, and I hope that Tracy Worcester's film is a success, and I hope that the British pig farmers, in particular, embrace the film and appreciate its sentiment. I wonder if that will happen. I expect they're out there now, sharpening their knives, but maybe not. Perhaps they'll look upon it positively. What do you think, Farmer Phil? I think there's every chance that the best of them will look on it totally positively, and that's the way it should be, that the ones who don't probably will lose out. Bye from me. Bye from me. Bye from me. Well done, Rachel. Great interview. Bye.